0: Hello friends. Welcome to episode 1248 of the Lot on the Hawks Podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on Memorial Day weekend. And thank you for listening to the show and watching the show as always, making us your first listen each and every day. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and across the podcast. Extravaganza that is the internet at this point in time. And today's show will be myself and Glenn Willis talking about DeAndre Hunter in terms of our Player Capsule series. We've talked about John Collins already on the show. daniela Gallinari a Smorgasbord episode where we talked about Jalen Johnson, Sharif Cooper, Skylar Mays, etc. With myself and Glenn. And today focuses on Hunter as a plug. I talked to Andrew Kelly two or three times in the last week and a half on fake trades and the draft, etc. The NBA draft lottery now in the wake of that, and also our most recent episode that you're listening to before this one would have been Kevin Chenarin and I talking for about an hour about the Hawks and the state of the Hawks affairs right now in the offseason. A lot of Interesting analysis there from Kevin on that podcast, and I definitely encourage you to catch up on that one and listen slash watch at your leisure. Again, today we will be on DeAndre Hunter with myself and Glenn, all kinds of interesting stuff on DeAndre in, in this very important time for his career from year three to year four, extension talk, offense, defense, et cetera, all that full breakdown. I'm recording this before I leave for actually a trip over the weekend, so keep that in mind, but nothing should have changed a whole lot, and I'm just telling you that for context purposes. But without further delay, you'll hear the intro, and then it's myself and Glenn talking about DeAndre Hunter. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am joined once again by my friend Glenn Willis to continue this player capsule series with a discussion today on DeAndre Hunter. Glenn, welcome back to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, getting into the mess that was the, the Andre Hunter season.
0: <laughs> Listen, uh, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, we've had plenty of on-record conversations about DeAndre Hunter uh, involving us. We've had offline conversations about DeAndre Hunter. Uh, I find that uh, oftentimes either you or I is trying to defend him in some circles and talk about how uh, he's maybe gets a little bit too much heat. And then even recently – I've gotten piled on for being too negative, quote unquote, about Hunter, maybe in this space. So uh, a lot of nuance, which is not always the strength of the Internet. I think you and I try to give a little bit of nuance along the way. But certainly at the very least, we could say it was not a breakout season in his third year for DeAndre Hunter. Uh, He was banged up, which we'll get into, I'm sure. It's worth noting just at the top, though, he had the wrist injury that cost him a bunch of time. He had the knee issue dating back to last year. And then he even said at the uh, exit interview at the end of the season that a back issue was really bothering him, which I know uh, our friend Kevin Shannard has pointed out ad nauseum of that Kelly Oubre hard foul in Charlotte, where that might have been what caused a lot of that for Hunter. So that's one of the caveats. Uh, The other that I want to point out before we dive into anything else is that he is, of course, entering his uh, his potential extension window uh, at the end of year three, as Kevin Herter was last year, um, as John Collins had in the, in the previous season. Um, they can't extend him. Uh, we will not spend too much time on that because I think it's not necessarily what we want to do, but we'll do that, I'm sure, at some point. But he'll be 25 in December, uh, a big year, if nothing else, coming for Hunter. No matter what happens extension-wise, in his development, I think his fourth season will be enormous, both because he wasn't great this year and because it just has kind of the, um, you know, at, he's at the age where it's kind of uh, not now or never, but you certainly kind of know more about what a guy is by the time he's 25, 26 years old. So, you know, we kind of got into it a little bit there. But Glenn, where, where is your brain at with DeAndre Hunter at this point? Because it feels like there's a lot of vitriol, but there's also a lot of uh, maybe holding out hope as a guy who was a former top five pick. Uh, where's your mood at on Hunter at the end of the season?
1: Yeah, I I feel like I understand uh, any perspective someone has, right? If someone's yeah, really pes- pessimistic, definitely. you're like you look back, and you're like uh, I get it, you know. Yeah. If, if, if someone's still optimistic, uh, I'm like I okay, I see a lot of things that that make me optimistic about what he could become too. Um, I, one thing for me is like when I went back to make my notes, I I noted he played 53 games, and I was like he played 53. I, I would I thought it was a smaller <laughs> number than that. It felt like he missed so much more time than that. Give missed a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, when I uh, – now that we've had time, a few weeks to kind of pull back from the Hawks' season and look back, Hunter maybe is the most interesting guy to kind of really kind of work through, okay, what did we learn about him this year? And, you know, for me, it, you know, I think about the first game when he was so good defensively on Luka, right? Yeah. And, and And from that vantage point, it's like, oh, man, the Hawks, you know, really could have the defensive guy that they want. And that didn't really kind of work out. And, and that we, if we have time, we can get into a little bit about scheme difference under Nate and the prior coaching staff and how that's kind of factoring in, in my view, around there. But but even like later in the season, when he had some of his better defensive performances, he's very good working over screens, which is rare for a guy his size to be, to be that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, uh, you know, I, we all recall... In the game, the Hawks won against Miami. The the way he defended Butler on that last possession, I mean, may, it just kind of makes you think like, oh, this could be the guy where on on the last possession of the game, where you need to stop. He's the one you're going to put on the guy that you know is going to go and seek that shot. And so there were <clears throat> flashes on defense, even if the consistency was pretty far off where the Hawks needed it to be, and where probably all of us <clears throat> really wanted to see that. How much of that was the back, you know? Here I am, a 50-year-old guy. And I hear someone complain <laughs> about their back, and I'm like all the empathy in the world for that, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but but in, in my mind, when I think about defense, it's hard for me not to kind of go to the other end of the court and think about, well, what do they really want him to do on offense? Is it to be the secondary uh, guy? Do they want him being second in usage, for example? Do they want him attacking the weak side after Trey's uh, kind of commanded a lot of attention at the point of attack and stuff like that? And to me, I feel like right now for him, the Hawks really need to decide what they want him to be. Because I feel like when I look back, it's kind of been a moving target. The injuries have been a part of that. Um, you know, Bogey coming in and becoming a guy who's an offensive focus, mostly this year on the second unit, kind of has an impact there. But I feel like they need to be like really specific about, about what they want. Um, do they want him to be their defensive stopper? And to make that where he spends most of his energy – and where most of kind of their bigger ass go on the defensive end. But on the offensive end, we've seen, you know, across his time in the league so far, when Trey – when the other team kind of cross-matches and puts a big wing on Trey, Dre, DeAndre will go at the smaller guy who sometimes has switched onto him and try to punish with his size that mismatch. So I feel like they need to right-size and correctly scope his offensive role and figure out that they want him to be a defensive primary – that probably needs a smaller role in offense or do they want him to be more kind of a a balanced two-way guy that's kind of your second and a half guy on both ends of the court, not necessarily second um, or or first in in that sense. And so for me, I kind of, as much as anyone else, I look at the coaching staff and I look at the front office and I'm like, what is the role that you are designing for him that will set him up for success? And I feel like that's been, um a moving target like his whole time since he came in the league. And so that that's that's what I think about. Like, you know, just one kind of indicator here, last year, to, you know, this pat to 2021 season, I should say, um, in between 16 feet and the three point line, he shot 58%. Not a huge volume, but he was great, like kind of operating in that uh kind of mid-range with his face up game. This year on more volume, he only shot 33%. And I think about how many times the Hawks were trying to attack a mismatch, and Dre kind of dribbling with the defender right in his face as opposed to getting a, a true advantage situation. So I, I feel like what the Hawks faced this year with more, uh, more switching, less drop, um, a, a lot more uh, pressure, ball pressure, and things like that, put DeAndre in a lot of situations offensively where he couldn't kind of get to his best stuff. And again, that's the thing that makes me go back and look at the coaching staff. So my top line takeaway this year is, man, figure out what his role needs to be, uh, be consistent with that, help them get set up for success with that, and stop you know kind of changing where he is in the offensive pecking order, and decide if he's going to be your first defensive wing or if you need somebody else um, kind of in that mix on that side as well. Because I think I think Hunter needs that consistency and that that role consistency that, that come along. And I felt like it's something he hasn't had at this point. I think it's something he needs. So that's maybe my biggest takeaway with
0: him. I'm glad you said that because it really does get overlooked. And uh, I'm reminded in, in the playoffs when you get the national voices for the first time, or at least for the, maybe the first time for the Hawks. And there's this thought that he's their number two on offense or that he is, he's, he's this elite, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, if you watch it, that's not really been the case. And I do think it comes down to, like you said, um, what is he going to be? We, we kind of know what he did this year. We'll talk about that for sure on this conversation and what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are. But uh, I think just taking a step back and laying it out like you just did is like, what, what does the organization want him to be? Because I think we kind of know they need a primary defender on the wing. He has been their best defender on the wing. He's been in that role, but not necessarily, uh, you know, a, prim- a focus that's overarching in that direction. And then on offense, yeah, we all know they don't have a number two either, but he's not that right now. Do they want him to be in the, in the future? And it's tough because, like, you, I think you laid it out the way, like, if, if he's your number two and a half player on both ends of the floor, does he ever get good enough at either one of those things? That, that's part of the problem, too, is, like, just internal development-wise, what's his focus supposed to be? And obviously, you want him to get better on both ends of the floor, but uh, for me, primary concern number one is having him be the defender that you think he needs to be. And especially given the roster construction. And he's been, again, their best guy. But I think it's fair to say he's not been incredible defensively. Uh, So that's part of the part of the issue as well. I just sort of laid it out that way. Uh, We're going to dive into both sides of the ball. I promise you on that. Before we get to that, though, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today today's show is brought to you by built bar and we've been asking for a long time and built has now delivered built bar granola bars are here built granola bars come in three unbelievable flavors they have chocolate peanut butter chocolate coconut and white chocolate berry if you want to try all three options get a mixed box right now at built.com they're so different from other bars and the puffs built bars uh, through the granola scene are loaded with granola it's a perfect combination of crunch and chewiness and just like bars and puffs the bars have protein They're packed with it, actually, and they have 100% real chocolate on the outside. Well, 150 calories, 15 grams of protein, only 4 grams of sugar. Built granola bars will change your world because Built has cracked the code to a better granola. They're the perfect healthy snack to pack in your lunch, take on the road, or eat as a snack, and they have the collagen protein you need to help your body absorb more efficiently. That provides a ton of health benefits. If you're waiting for a delicious and healthy granola bar to hit the market, this is absolutely your time. Head to built.com right now to get all of the Built granola bars. They have the three delicious flavors to try. Once again, that's chocolate peanut butter, chocolate coconut, and white. Chocolate berry. Do not miss out on this. Get, get yours today while supplies last, of course, and go to built.com to get all the built roller bars that you want right now. Use the promo code lock15 when you get there. One more time that's promo code lock15built.com, 15% off at built.com. Glenn, let's talk about offense first. You, you kind of pivoted back to the offense. Let's let's do that. Uh, I have some numbers and we'll sort of dive into uh, what transpired here. You talked about the volume that he took in the mid range and the way he shot that there. It's interesting enough to me. Uh, He shot very poorly on like floater range shots and long twos last year, uh, especially in comparison to the year before. Now you mentioned the number, uh, I think it was like 58, 59%. That is never sustainable for anyone. Unless you're you're Kevin Durant, no one's shooting that from long two. So like, I think a little bit was the tease of how good he was early in the year in his second season. He was clearly making every shot he took basically. And that was not necessarily going to be sustainable, but it crashed back to earth. Uh, and this year he shot about 47% on twos. That's not great for a guy with his physical size and, uh, and, and power. Uh, and he did shoot well on threes, about 38% or so, but also took the least volume of his career from three. So maybe you could say uh, he took better shots. You, could, you might say that maybe that helped to his, uh, to his uh, percentage, but that's an interesting kind of point. And then beyond the shooting, which we can sort of get into as well, his assist rate was, uh, let's just say terrible. Uh, a six point one percent assist rate. Uh, I think he's been one of the worst passing small forwards in the league. I don't. I don't say that lightly. I don't mean. That, I don't mean, mean that to pile on. But in terms of what his position is, most guys playing the three are not as bad of a passer as he has been. Uh, in comparison, uh, this is going to kind of startle people. I think uh, he had a worse assist rate than Clay Capella, than Aniket Kongwu. And uh, other bigs, let's just say, and Capella and Akongwu are not noticed, like you know, especially Capella, not noticed as as a great passer, higher higher assist rate than DeAndre Hunter this year. So we can get into like all the nuance of why his scoring was kind of the same as it's been the last couple of years. So that's not a huge concern. And look, he did average 15 points a game. You can't fake that. Um, But there were strengths, there were weaknesses. Uh, I will just leave before I hand it over to you. I'll just say it is a bright spot that he has now established himself as at least a pretty good three point shooter. And if you're a three and D guy, go back to what we said a second ago. If, if your role is going to be, uh, let's just say Dorian Finney Smith as a comparison point, that's a good player. Is that a top five pick in the draft? Maybe not, but throw that out the window. If you want the, if you want Hunter's role to be elite defender and spot up shooter, there's some signs in there on his spot up shooting. that that's, that's actually might be a good path for him. If you want him to do everything else, the inside, the three point line stuff, the passing, et cetera, there's more room to uh, grow there.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it, and you know, I, I I hope for once and for all, ready to move on from baby Kawhi, and you know, Kenny no, and, we're never
0: ready. We're never ready for that, uh, play. It, will, it will never die.
1: I I get it. he was a top five pick, and and the 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 hopes were high and things like that. But I I sometimes I realize I I think like people not really know how rare that is, like the that level of two way player, Paul George kind of level, which and 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 in, in small bets, I feel like sometimes they were kind of nudging him in that direction. We need a lot from you and on offense and defense. And to my comments a few minutes ago, I think we need to fix that, you know, from my view. Offensively, which is where you want to take the conversation, is three-point shooting is critical. You need to have credible three-point shooters on the floor with Trey because of what the kind of shots he creates for his teammates. So that's, that's great, and I don't see a reason why he can't be a reliable, you know, in the range of 37 and 38, you know, on a good season, 39 or more, you know, in that range. For me, though, for a guy his size, uh, um, the shooting profile, uh, what he shot from two this year, et cetera, it all comes down to finishing, and, and not just finishing at the rim, but embracing contact when it's there. And I know that we're not um, Kevin Herter will be on a different you know podcast, <laughs> but if you have your a two and a three that start, that when Trey has to give up the ball and the ball comes to him on the weak side, and there's a seam that's created and the right play is to get into that team and attack that scene, if neither one of those guys is willing to go strong to the rim and encounter serious contact, especially in the playoffs, that's an issue. So I mentioned Herderon because I don't want to, it to sound on this podcast like that's a unique thing to, to Hunter. They, they've got to have – they need it for them to like become a real kind of contender with this roster construct, you know, hopefully you know, improving – they need that from both of them guys, but it starts with, they got to have it for one of these two guys. Right. And, and there are time, times when he'll, 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 it'll look like, Oh, he realizes that how much length he has and he'll realize like how strong he is and how much size he has and he'll go strong. But then you'll see him play the next four games and be two of nine at the rim across those four games and look like he's avoiding contact. Now is that the hand is that the back is at the other stuff, you know, as a quote fan, I can understand one wanting to kind of talk themselves into that being injury related, but this has been a thing pretty much for his whole NBA career at this point, not going uh, to embrace that contact at the rim uh, and such. And I know he gets uh, frustrated with the calls he doesn't get, but I think, you know, I think we could probably all agree that to get calls in the NBA, you've got to be aggressive going to the rim and not kind of trying to work around the contact referees to start going to, I'll uh, give you that. So I think he's, I still think he has a great raw face up game that can help uh, with kind of attacking mismatches, not as a primary way to play basketball and offense for the team, but I still think he's going to be one, he's equipped to be one of the best guys kind of uh, punishing mismatches. But in my mind, when you look at what the Hawks are trying to do in offense, like as their primary way of playing, Trey creating those weak side scenes. He has got to, in my mind, the number one priority on offense development for him is attack that scene aggressively, get into that space, and then finish and or draw contact. And if he's not willing to do that, that's really going to cap his offensive value and the construct of being a piece around trade.
0: No, it's a great point, and especially because he's not the great passer, like we just said. Like he's not going to ever be, in my mind, he he can improve there. I think he, much like Collins, has um you can improve there and still not be great at it and i think that's what you're hoping from hunter is that he gets to be a better passer but he's never going to be a great you know number two distributor kind of Is that's not really what he's built to do um so yeah he's got to be aggressive i know our friends at cleaning the glass uh had him rated as a 27th percentile rim finisher this year for a guy with his physical tools that's just not good enough he's got to be better at that um because i mean we thought we talked about just just to lay it out like hunter is the with seven seven one seven two wingspan, he's chiseled. He's strong, like Kevin Herter, You can kind of see why he has limitations at the rim. Kevin Herter's not a physical guy. Like he's he's better at that than he used to be, but he's always been a perimeter player. He's always been a shooter. Uh, he's very skinny. He's stronger than he used to be, but DeAndre Hunter doesn't have any of those any of those issues. Hunter is a big physical guy, and when to your point, when, when he does it and when he ramps up, it can be really impressive looking. When he finishes at the rim through contact, it look it looks great sometimes. But accuracy wise, through three seasons he's basically been a below average to be kind rim finisher and then we throw that into like middling efficiency on floaters and middling efficiency on long twos aside from the weird second year sample like that that two-point shooting is just not it's not good enough um and I, it's different if you're the fifth option like if he was just going to be tasked with being only a catch and shoot guy and that's not where they are yet they, they definitely want, don't want him to be that uh, but if, if they were to do that you can be fine with that because then all he's doing is taking catch and shoot threes, playing good defense. That's that's a good role player, and there's there's room for that guy. But they have not come to the realization at least internally that he's going to be only that. So until he's unless unless it's unless it's going to be that, he's got to get better at other things. And to to your point, like attacking the seam, getting downhill, not hesitating, and also not not necessarily taking those pull up twos. Like if it's a, if it's a wide open pull up two, not a bad shot for him. He's he, he's able to do that. I'm not the zealot on never take long twos. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what you don't want is Hunter up faking and taking a contested 18-footer. You don't want that shot from him unless you absolutely have to have it late in the shot clock. So there's nuance there too, but he's always kind of really loved himself to take those contested long twos going back to college, and they've not quite gotten that out of, a, out of him yet either. So um, to be below average, again, to be kind at the rim and in the mid range. Uh, for basically most of his career to this point, plus a below average passer, you're getting to a point where your offense is not going to be able to be sustainably good. That's where we are. Now, y- you said like there's still hope for a lot of this stuff, and I'm not closing the door at all, but it does kind of just lend itself to decision-making, bringing it all the way back to what we-, what we talked about before, knowing what he needs to do or what they want him to do and either do it better or do something else less or like, just find that sweet spot of what they actually want.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny because I think about the way to handle getting Dre to be more aggressive in the scenes, tucking the weak side when it's opened up is like when I coach, you know, uh, young people. Th- there are times I get to a point where I'm trying to encourage a uh, a boy or girl to, you know, or a teenager or whatever to kind of do what I need them to do. And like sometimes it's like, I know you wanted us to run plays to get you a three, right? <laughs> but if you don't start attacking the scene like consistently, we're not running anything for you. So like it's like that important to us. And it's not trying to be like, you know, uh, a drill sergeant kind of coach or whatever, but to, to emphasize like, you have to do this for us to be successful. It just kind of feels like that's where they are, they are with him with, uh, you know, attacking the rim and finishing and embracing contact. The second thing I guess I would point out on offense is that he did a lot more this year was being a screener in the pick and roll, especially the second half of the season. They ran a lot of uh, double drag, we might call it, where it's wing big. And then they started converting the, the, the post-screen action where the wing, being first, was slipping to the paint and then the big kind of finding a, uh, something else to do valuably, and which gave him a lot of opportunity to kind of catch the ball in the paint and such. This was the first year he had a heavy dose of that. And I thought when I watched him that he was showing some improvement in the nuance around all that. But I think coming into this season, they decide, is, is that going to be something we do uh, with him a lot? Because if so, they need to give him a, a ton of reps and really prepare him to be in that role where he's screening and slipping, screening and popping, whatever that is, because he really did none of that before this season. And they almost had to do that because of the way that they were being defended. And the and the wing big helps them uh, kind of make the the big man, who was typically thinking about getting to the level of screen, helping on train, et cetera, it creates that space in the middle. And they I thought they made a little bit of progress kind of getting him to do some stuff with that. So that's another thing to kind of watch going into the next season is uh, – is he still heavily involved in that screen action, wing big screen action, or do they go away from that and, and have him set up on the weak side, kind of spotting up and waiting for the ball to rotate to him and attacking? It doesn't have to be one or the other, um, but, but in my mind, I, I wouldn't want to go to, like, Dr. Andre, here's the five or six different things we're going to do with you. It's like, here are the two things we're going to do with you, right? You're going to spot up on the weak side, catch it, rotate the ball and attack, or we're going to put you into the wing big uh staggered screen and kind of go that way, and that's really all we're asking you to do. Now, they they also put him on ball sometimes when trading to break. They'll run that stack uh, where he lifts to one of the three point breaks and runs a pick and roll from there. That's fine. I think I would punt. <laughs> I think I would punt on any idea of running having him running more than three or four pick and rolls a game or something like
0: that. Yeah, it's a second, um, it's a very secondary, maybe a tertiary <laughs> idea because it's not really what he's going to do super but, well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And the ball handling is just, I mean, that's what will hold him back in that, in that situation. Now he could, the handle could come along uh, with some work and things like that. And hopefully if he, you know, is healthy um, in this off season, that will come along. Um, but he, he's just not decisive enough. Uh, he doesn't process that action enough in my view to really do that. So I would make that a third priority if they're going to kind of get to a third priority. So back to week side, function as a, uh, in the staggered screen and know how to function out coming out of that screen. And then if there's anything you want to do with him on ball, that to me, that's the third priority. That's how I would stack it up for him next year and try to simplify a little bit of what they have going on. There are a few other things like he did some good rim running this year. I think a lot of people didn't notice um, in a way that kind of Jimmy Butler as a wing will render him like crazy and rely on like this year, Lowry to hit, to hit it. I think there's something to explore there as a marginal thing for him and, and kind of a matchup-based thing for him. But in terms of like, hey, DeAndre, this is the offensive that we have busy for this year. It's spot up, attack that weak side strong, get into the scene, embrace that contact finish, work as a screener, know how to come off of that screen and get into the space where you're helping the offense overall, whether you get the ball or not. Everything else comes after that. That's how I would stack it up. And I hope that's what we see.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I have a couple more things to ask you about the offense, and then we sort of transition back to the defensive end of the floor because it's always it's all it's all put together in that similar uh, two-way fashion. But first, a word from our sponsors on the podcast. All right, Glenn, uh, this is going to be kind of a broad question and maybe a very simplified, overly simplified question, but I, it sort of popped, popped to my mind when we were talking about uh, him being as a screener more and we're running more. Um, he played a lot more power forward last year. At different times, uh, both in court, both according to the play play by play data, and also just because of uh, you know, Gallo's absence and then Collins at the end of the year being absent. Hunter played a lot of four, and uh, there's some defensive stuff about that as well. But I wonder if that sort of hampered him a little bit on offense at times because, um, it's just a very different role in the Hawks offense when he's playing the four versus when he's playing the three. And uh, you also mentioned uh, the wrist injury, which I brought up I know our, our mutual friend Andrew Kelly has said this behind the scenes, but like, I wonder if that really hurt his ball handling because that's been one of the real issues with Hunter is that as a ball handler for a small forward, it's not gone very well. And I wonder if he just sort of stagnated because of the wrist or whatever's going on there. So I wonder what, what springs to mind about those two potential things because, um, you know, it's kind of all mixed in together, but a, if he's not going to be a great ball handler, it's hard to get downhill to our points earlier. And also if you play, if he's playing more four. His role is just so much different on both ends of the floor, but uh, especially—I mean, really on both ends of the floor. I guess not even especially on defense, but uh, I don't know. It's just uh, intriguing because, yeah, in theory, he'd be a great combo four. He he has the physicality for it at six eight and two twenty, whatever he is. But uh, in the Hawks system, uh, him playing the three versus the four, it's just very different.
1: Yeah, it is, Um, and um, you know the ball handling thing. You know, historically, he's been a guy when he's attacking a, a defender in front of him it starts with a jab right dribble. Away. He's pretty mechanical. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise sure. me when I say that, right? Always, or, has too. Always. Yeah. Or if the defender jumps to his right hand, it's kind of an immediate move with his left hand attacking that direction. And he's good with the step back when he's working to his left. Like, I mean, Lou is the famous guy. Don't let him get left with his dribble right and then get to the step back. Um, but that's basically kind of in the package. One-on-one, he's pretty safe with the ball. When defenses like Miami did so many times, pushes him into traffic. That's when it gets really rough, <laughs> yep. and and that's where I, I the the improvement has to come for him to be one of your primaries on offense. Now, um, de- defensively, you know, when we go back to before the coaching change, he was often the defensive point guard or or defending the other team's point guard, a ton, and that shifted a little bit this year, especially with Herder, um, kind of cementing his spot in the starting lineup where they kind of uh, went game to game in terms of who how Herter and Hunter were going to match up there. Um, but but in my mind, I, you know, I think Hunter is still the better of the two on ball. I think he yeah. was their best wing defender across the season in that kind of role. Herter is good working over flare screens and other types of off-ball screens, uh, things like that. Herter is just not physical enough all the time to work around a really good screener when he's chasing someone with the ball around the screen, Hunter has the footwork where he gets the foot down before the screener can kind of get up into uh, his body to really limit him and just the size and the strength to kind of work over that. I when I think about him in that role in that area, I think about him kind of taking issue with the way some of the Miami set a few screens that impacted him physically. And they're like, yeah, you've got to be willing to kind of push back, you know, on that and such. So, I still think his best role defensively is to be with someone else a one-a-one-b kind of situation, where it's a little bit kind of matchup-dependent. In terms of can he play defensively at the four? I know I'm maybe still in your thunder here, but the rebounding no. has not been nearly yeah, good enough. Yeah, well, that, that
0: was definitely part. Of, that's definitely part of it. And like quickly before we before I forget to say this, uh, part of the issue with having him be your your primary perimeter guy, like. On guards, like you know, especially seasons, especially no matter who it was, point guard, shooting guard, small, like he was always the guy they put. Well, not always, most of the time, the guy they put on the best player on the perimeter, no matter what. If he's playing the four, and you're playing, and you're playing him alongside a couple of wings who are you know smaller wings, like Herder type wings, it's a lot harder to have that guy be your primary point of attack defender. If he's playing the four as well, so that's part of the calculus too. And then you get into the rebounding, where I know I've been a. I've been banging the drum on this for a long time. Uh, and I will say it was the worst it's ever been this year. He was not quite as bad of a rebounder the first two years of his career, but he ended up this season, just to put a number on it with a 10.4% defensive rebound rate, which is, uh, I would describe that as flat out awful for a power forward. That's for sure. Even as a small forward, that's a really bad number. Uh, just for comparison's sake, he had a worse defensive rebound rate than Herder. He had a worse rebound rate than Bogdanovich and DeLon Wright. I know DeLon's really good as a guard, but still, he's a lot has a lot better physical tools to rebound than guys like Herter and McDonavich. He has a very similar rebound rate to guys like Trey and Lou, which tells you all you need to know about that. I know Trey's actually kind of a sneaky, decent guy rebounding sometimes, because but again, he's 6'1", 180 versus uh, versus Hunter. So, I think that at a bare minimum, to be fair, he should be better than that moving forward. It was kind of a worst-case scenario kind of thing, but just to have one more comparison because i actually did the research uh he had a worse rebound rate than guys like donovan mitchell and the iron fox and tyus jones malik monk jordan Poole. all those guys have better rebound rates than hunter not what you want so that's part of it and uh, i sort of invoked this earlier in the offseason this is a very similar conversation to what we used to have about torian prince they're different players but there was always a call for torian to play the four and i was always like is he going to rebound? Because if he doesn't rebound, he can't play the four. Uh, right. It's kind of the same thing for Hunter. Uh, I think he'll be better than this. The tools are better than this, but uh, that is definitely a limitation. And it's just kind of a weird thing too. I don't know if there, there's probably some randomness to it. But I mean, you pay attention to this stuff more than most. Like, is it a, is a is it a, is it a want to thing? Like, what holds him, what holds him back in your mind from being even a decent rebounder? Because he should be physically a decent rebounder. You would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks to me like he when he gives. Has to give so much effort at the point of attack that he he's for whatever reason is not able to reorient himself. Once the shot goes up, like most players can go, oh, the shot's up. I'm gonna figure out where uh, there's some space to step in and help rebound and things like that. And it just seems like him reorienting, reorienting himself to being a rebounder is just something that, that's hard for him. I don't. I have no idea what that's about. These
0: well, up too. Like you said, like maybe it's part of it. We would say is that he is playing on the perimeter defensively more than a lot of guys at the position would be like if yeah. he's, if he's guarding, let's just say, I don't even know, pick, pick a high end guard. If he, if he's defending, I don't know, point guard X, that's a great player in the league. Kyrie, right. Yeah. Um, Kyrie. Yeah, yeah. Like it's going to be harder to rebound guarding Kyrie than it would be if your entire job was to defend um, even Kevin Durant or somebody on that team that is just closer to the rim a lot. Uh, right. So that, that is maybe if you want to be charitable part of it, but that does not explain a full season of 10% rebounding. I can't explain to you how bad that is. It's just very, very, very bad. And like, it's different than a Kongwu, where like we did this, we had this competition before, but a Kongwu has clear physical reasons why he wouldn't be a great defensive rebounder for a center. Like, there's a reason inherently why he wouldn't be great at that. He is 6'8 playing center. But Hunter doesn't have that. And it's like, we believe, at least I do. I think you do too. That a con will, will improve there, but it's always going to be a question of his. This is, this this shouldn't need to be a question of DeAndre Hunter's profile. In fact, it, for me, it wasn't. It wasn't as a prospect. It wasn't like we were worried about this dating back to when he was a uh, coming out of Virginia. Like it shouldn't be a problem. And I wonder if that's something that they know is going to be a problem moving forward, or maybe it's something that they're w- going to work on with him because it might seem like a small thing, but for a team, and maybe I, I should say this one more caveat. It's possible that it's lower because of Capella too. I've given Collins that um, a little bit. Uh, I think it's more direct when it, when it comes to Collins, but it's hard to make that case when guys like Herter and Bogey have better rebound rates than you do. So so I'm trying to to do all things, like I'm trying to defend him a little bit on this, but like at the end of the day, it's unacceptably bad. It really is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it, it is kind of funny to work into the context a little bit because you'll see a game where Trey has like seven or eight rebounds and, and I'll remind myself like, Oh, that team was constantly on purpose putting Trey on the weak side baseline, which is prime yeah. rebounding
0: real estate. Right. And, and the so ball he, just, it, the ball just comes to him in certain ways. And yeah, it's right. Uh, it's what it is.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, and it's easy when you have been away from the play and not had to show up as a health defender to be able to kind of focus on you know, where the rebound is coming off and things like that. But I think that may be part of it, but the, you know, the reality is when the Hawks were at their best rebounding the ball, especially when Clint was off, was when four defenders were getting to the paint and showing up to help rebound together. And he was maybe the least consistent in doing it. Like Bogey was incredible at that, like just being really consistent, coming down to help rebound and Herter too. And that's where those guys pick up, you know, an extra two or three rebounds in a game sometimes that that, that makes a big difference. It was kind of funny in the Miami series like it felt like we went like seven quarters without him getting a single rebound and I think it was yeah. game, early in game five maybe in four or five when finally he got a rebound but like I joked and like said the ball came off the rim and like came right at him and, like, right at him and almost like uh, murdered him like it, the ball was like <laughs> you're gonna rebound me you know that no the, of, you know, just uh, <laughs> the four
0: the, the first four games of the Miami series he got a total. Of seven defensive rebounds, and he was playing 30 plus minutes a game. And I mean, you cannot have that happen now. Granted, game five, he had 11 sorry, 10 defensive rebounds in game five, and that was like a throw a party situation. Um, but I mean, there were I have all these stats and I won't use them all, but there, there was there was there was a month and a half stretch this year from mid February to the end of March where he never exceeded five rebounds in a game, he was playing every night for a month and a half, and like you might just look into that sometimes like you just said with Trey or with bogey, like it could, I mean, I, I, we don't have to keep talking about that for that much, but it is, it's a question. And that definitely hurts him. And I was going to ask you about these catch all metrics, which don't, they don't tell you everything, but like Hunter basically is viewed as an average or maybe even worse than average defender by some of these catch all's like the ones that I trust, even like EPM and Raptor, the ones that I think are probably the better ones don't view Hunter as this like great defensive player. And I think as much as you and I believe in his defense I think it's fair to say that he's not been as advertised defensively through three seasons, at least on the yeah. whole. And I think last year, and again, this is something I was high. This is someone I had in my top five coming out. Cause I believe in the defense is sort of a floor raising thing. Like I think it's be good defensively. I don't think he's bad. We've said that a number of times on the show, like he's been their go-to best win wing defender, but like, what do you make of, the numbers, maybe that's part of that is like the team success or lack thereof that kind of drags you down and those as well. But do you think he's a good defender right now? Like on the whole, like I I want you to kind of lay out what you think are are his strengths and weaknesses too. as sort of an overall, because we're trying to be more nuanced than this, but you know, people will ask you or they'll ask me like, you know, how good is he on defense? Someone that doesn't watch the Hawks every night. And I don't even know what to tell people sometimes it's like, okay, he's not bad. I'll say that That, that's, that's a baseline. That's a positive thing. But is he, like, a game-changing defender? Because right now I think the answer is probably no to that in terms of, like, being a huge, like, plus-plus guy.
1: Yeah, I for me, I think the numbers are mostly about inconsistency this year. I think he had probably, like, seven or eight games where it's like, okay, he really made an impact on defense, right? For, For the way that the roster blueprint was put together this year, for the Hawks to win, say, 52 games or more, right, They needed him to be a guy who was so good on defense that people started saying, is he going to get some votes for all defense? And he was miles away. Like he wasn't – I mean, no one should have spent even a second thinking about whether (laughs) DeAndre should have gotten, like, votes for all defense. And and in my mind, that is an important input into the way you construct rosters going forward. If they're trying to kind of move themselves towards being a true contender, I think you have to say to yourself – DeAndre is never going to be um, or is unlikely to ever be a guy who is giving you that much defensive consistency to help you get to being a top 12 or top 10 defense in the league. And so he probably needs to be your one B on defense at best. If, I, I'm not talking about on your average NBA team. I'm talking about a team that's really trying to do something, right? Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's where that, that, that comes for me. If they really simplified his role on offense – and then really said, look, we're, we want to really have you invest like 80% of your energy, et cetera, on defense. Could he start getting closer to that? I don't think that's ridiculous to think that. But they're gonna ha- they would have to really right-size his role on offense to give him that focus on defense like you see in a guy like Dorian Penny-Smith. Now, I think it's fair to say you'd be punting on a lot of potential offensive value if you did that. So let's make him the number two on defense in terms of our perimeter guys, see if we can get a guy who can kind of come in and be um, a guy who does give 75 80% of his effort and energy on defense and get DeAndre slotted correctly on both uh, both ends of the court. What I mean, what he does well, I missed it earlier is navigating screens with his size is great. Um, you know, holding up at the point of attack without help B plus, you know, probably see what I kind of, kind of give him there. When, when he gets into space, um, at times, he can have a little bit of trouble. And to me, that's just about uh, more consistent footwork, not from the vantage point that he has bad footwork, but that he's not using specific footwork for what the other, what the player with the ball likes to do. Is he recognizing this guy loves to move left, like immediately, and getting on that player's uh, sort of left side? It's that game planning and the nuance that kind of comes in there that would need him to kind of really, really move. Now, like I said, it's hard to do that if you're asked to take a lot of uses on uh, on offense. So for me, that, that's where it comes in. Uh, we talked about this with JC a little bit, but really where a lot of Hunter's defensive value should come from is in his versatility. You know, I remember a play in the Knicks series when he uh, shuffled into center and he was in the middle of the paint calling out you know all of the comms and getting everyone organized and then someone dribbled down his area and he got a block and rebound his own block and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, so he can do enough <clears throat> on ball, he can do enough off ball and such that if you don't have him being your number one defender all the time, his versatility is going to show up in some of those other areas, helping at the rim, you know, kind of coming down with a stunt or a dig that really helps the guy. Uh, that's defending at the point of attack. So I wouldn't probably want him uh, if I'm trying to build a, a like a 50, you know, two fifty five game winner slotted to be that guy on defense. I would want him to be probably only my second guy. And then that, that kind of, that kind of works for me. Um,
0: but, yeah.
1: you know, the, the other thing to question quickly is that when, when uh, Lloyd Pierce was still the coach, one major change under Nate, is that Lloyd wanted all of his wings and guards to top lock the ball and push the ball hunter down towards the corner baseline corner. Yep. And they brought specific help across the paint to seal that baseline off. That and Herder did that, Hunter did that. They tried to get Redis to do it, Redis wasn't doing anything, they <laughs> really wanted to be specific. <laughs> that specifically, um, yeah. but now Nate is keep your guy in front of you, do your job, keep your guy, and it is a completely different technique to play. And I think for a guy who is a little bit more mechanical, like DeAndre, he needs more role and technique stability to not always be changing you know, the kind of technique you're asking him to play. And so I think I could see where a guy like DeAndre needed more time to go, oh, we're not top-locking these guys all the time anymore. We're, you want me to keep him in front of me? That's a completely different I – and mean, that is a different universe of, like, yeah. footwork and technique to play – and so I, I'll be curious to see coming kind of, into kind of, I mean, the season, you know, going into a second full year under Nate and, and kind of working that top blocking footwork technique out and to keep your guy in front, if he might stabilize that area of his play a little bit more where he was, I was disappointed in the lack of consistency he had there for what I think he's capable of.
0: No, that's a great point. I had not thought about that in particular, but when you, when you lay it out like that, it's very clear that his, his role has changed and, you know, listen, we have to live in reality and you know, it's going to be very hard for the Hawks to get a, a guy um, that's a shut down defender on the wing alongside Hunter. Like that's, that's one of those things that's, it's hard. Like, I think I agree with you ideally with what we've seen so far, he's better off as being your number two defender. Um, but more practically, maybe you're looking for him to be your, your one B. Like maybe you, maybe you want to have a situation where you don't have a dominant defender, but you have two guys who are good, big and versatile or whatever. And I know the idea dating back to that draft was to draft two defensive wings and Hunter and Reddish. And that's not really worked out perfectly so far, but there was a theory behind it. That's why they did that. Uh, And I think that, you know, you could certainly argue that, and a lot of people said this before the draft that Hunter was not ever going to be, you know, an all defense defender. It was more like we wanted to be really good defensively, but there is a difference between, you know, your game changing two way Mikhail bridges type defenders and the next tier down. And I honestly, I think, you mentioned we mentioned during face Smith a few times, not, not on purpose, but he's not a, an Uber elite defender. He's a he's a good defender. He's very good. But he's not an all-defensive guy either. But if he gets, if Hunter gets to where DFS is defensively with more juice on offense, and he has more juice on offense than spit Smith that's for sure. That is what your ideal player was. Um, it was never baby Kawhi to make that reference one more time. For me, that was never realistic. Like, was there a 1% chance of it? Sure. But I think that you were never draft even as much as they in my mind overpaid and I have to get out of every podcast overpaid for the draft for the right to draft Hunter it was never going to be there. we think he's a star like they never they never said that number 1 and like maybe they paid a lot to get that guy but it was more like we need this guy's skill set theoretically to play with Trey Young they were not drafting down Hunter to be a superstar and they know he's not that so bringing it all full circle what what they actually want him to be is a big question like because it would be a lot easier. It would be a lower ceiling thing, which I think you said earlier. It would be easier to make him better as a regular season player right now if you just said, okay, DeAndre, we want you to just shoot threes and play defense. It would be a lot easier. and Honestly, that player would be better than he's been so far. That That yeah. is very clear to me. So if, if all you want to do is think short term, that actually would be a better outcome. But he's too skilled on offense and too – potentially capable on offense to go ahead and punt his offense like that in my mind i think i think you agree with me on that for what you just said so that that's the question is like we're not not that has to be this this linear but where do you draw that line what do you let him do quote unquote on offense what do you want him to do on offense and then how does that affect your defensively because at the end of the day there's always so much energy for offensive defense most of the time not always most of the time the best defenders are limited offensive players because it's really hard to do both of those things all the time especially in the regular season it's just tough
1: yeah, and, I, and it's interesting um, to me to think about, like, we talked about positionally what should it look like role-wise both ends into the court, what should it look like? One potential solution that could already be on, on this roster, um, not ready for it yet, but if you played him and Jalen together, there might be a lot of times where you're like, which one's a small forward, which one's a power forward? You're not really sure. And, and, and it doesn't really matter. And who
0: cares? Yeah, exactly. Right, right.
1: <laughs> and and the thing to think of, if we kind of pull back on like, what would those two guys look like together once Jalen's really ready? You look at Jalen's ball handling and creation potential, much higher ceiling than DeAndre in both of those areas. And that's yep. where you might work You know, DeAndre just as a spot-up guy, attack those teams on the weak side, and get Jalen more into primary action as the guy who's – setting a screen, functioning the short roll, whatever that might be. And then on the other end of the court, I think Jalen has shown a lot that he's going to be, he could be a very good rebounder for his position, which helps offset some of the shortcomings that DeAndre has. And in that case, DeAndre, I think, is always going to be a better on-ball defender than Jalen, that they can get Jalen kind of functioning more as that athletic guy that can show up and help and like cover a lot of ground and get to the rim, all that stuff. I mean, that could be like a really powerful, Kind of way to structure those two guys, and I think they have a from a potential standpoint more on Taylor's side. It's still a lot of what DeAndre has is potential because he hasn't done really much of it consistently at all. The the pairing there could really be something if if they could kind of get both of them to hit on the areas um, that they would need to hit on to make that match up. And again, I don't like when I, I haven't. I'm not ready to answer the question. Like, well, then <laughs> might might that be a thing that works the second half of this next season? I don't know. I don't know if they can get far enough. I, oh, I mean, would the You're... next season. The next season seems like a more realistic target. Yeah. But as, a, as 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 corporate speak, as a stretch goal to get some of that <laughs> this season, uh, that excites me. The poss- sure. that pairing, the possibility of that, and again, it, there's a lot of things that have to go right, and they both would have to embrace the role that has carved out for them to get them to complement one another. But that could be a thing that kind of solves for a lot of the issues that we're seeing. Um, where the play at the three and the four, de- depending on what flight on the court, is kind of uh, clunky and not always kind of what it needs to be. Those two guys, if it came together the right way, could, could be pretty um, interesting and helpful.
0: No, it could be, and I uh, will avoid the rabbit hole entirely, but uh, <laughs> if, you, if you had those guys as your three and four – you are open up a lot in a lot of ways to compensate for what you don't have other places. Like you can play John Collins at center with those guys if you wanted to, and you have sure. enough physicality and enough rebounding with Jalen at the four to get away with that in a way you couldn't, if Hunter's playing the four with John Collins, et cetera. Or if you, so if you wanted to move on for Capella eventually, um, and they're probably going to have to do that at some point, that'd be a good pairing with the Kongwu too, because then it kind like, of helps makes up for some of the size limitations with the Kongwu if you have Jalen Johnson at 6'9, 220 and flying around next to him, that's a good pairing for him as well. So like all these questions and, uh, it is future facing, but it's a good point. Um, you know, it's, it's just really interesting I, I to kind of put a boat up before you, before you get out of here. I, I know I have been, um, people got mad at me recently for talking about Hunter and how much he struggled this year. And I think that, maybe I should do a better job of framing that it's not that I don't believe in Hunter long-term. I, st- I still do actually believe in Hunter pretty well. I'm, a, I'm also a realist. And I think it's kind of my job sometimes to point out like, look, he could have a lot of talent and a lot of upside and a lot of future facing intrigue and also, and also have been bad this year. And both those things kind of are, are true in this case. And there's more nuance than that. As I've tried to talk, I mean, we, we've, uh, Glenn and I have tried to do this for like 45 minutes now talking about uh, all the reasons why, it was not a good season for him in, in year three. That, that's objectively true in my mind. You could yep. disagree with me if you want to, Glenn. I think you agree with me in generally. I it do. just wasn't a good season. Uh, that's okay. It doesn't mean that the that the party's over for DeAndre Hunter and you have to pack it up and go home. He could still have a great year in year four. Uh, it's just a it's a pretty interesting time for him. Uh, even beyond, I purposely did not want to do, want to do extension talk with you, Glenn. It's not necessarily what we do together <laughs> most of the time. Yep. But like, it's a big decision for the Hawks as well. Like. Yep. In some ways, you have to not fully decide on him, but if you want to extend him, you're really kind of buying on what you're seeing long term. If you don't, the risk mitigation is, it's not a bad thing, but if he has a great season next year and now you're going to owe him like a near max contract, that's something else. So like, uh, it's interesting. I'll just say this. The, the next 12 months for DeAndre Hunter are maybe career defining, honestly, both for his yeah. wallet and... And also for his future with the Hawks and whatever else, like it's a big, big, big stretch coming up for him. I'm intrigued by it. We are both intrigued by it, I think, but uh, it's going to be really interesting.
1: Agreed. And I guess my last thought here is, I know a lot of Hawks fans are like, get him out of here, get him into a trade, whatever. It's like, (laughs) yeah, he he had a rough season and it wasn't good enough. I'll also say, be, be careful what you wish for, because it is hard to find guys with his physical profile that will play as hard as he will play that can move, and have the functional athleticism that he does have, it is super hard to find those types. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I, I get like, oh, if we could trade him for a, a real difference maker, yeah. Like we, you and I, we talked about John Collins. Everybody's on the table to trade in those scenarios, right? That's but what I would I said say, before. Like, like yeah. yeah, it's fair. He had a rough season. It wasn't good enough for what they need from him. We talked about some of why some of that falls on him, and in my mind, some of that falls around organizational decisions to be made. Sure. Um, but just but see, be careful what you wish for because if, if he gets, if he were to get casually moved, which I don't think will happen, then just let's just count the number of seasons it takes for them, the Hawks to reacquire a guy who brings uh, the, the, that raw profile that he brings. Uh, it's, it, there aren't a lot of guys like that.
0: So. And that is why, at the end of the day, they did what they did to draft him. And I, I, right. I nitpicked the, the overpay in my mind of capital, right. but that is, that is why they did that. They, they know. Deep down, Travis Shant knows that you have to take bets on those six, eight, six, seven, six, nine wings that can play, that can play both ends of the floor, and that's why they've they drafted those guys in the same draft. That's why Jalen Johnson is not exactly the same player, but that's why they did another thing there with Jalen who can play a little bit of the three, a little bit of the four. Those are modern guys who have two way appeal. And when you're building around Trey young in particular, you have to have those guys. You have to, to win at the highest level, you have to have defenders in particular. And uh, they know that they're betting on them. And obviously the reddish thing didn't work out very well, but they'll try it again later with that pick whenever it comes back and this year's pick or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. They, they know what they are hoping he'll be. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. Nobody's sure that what, what's going to happen there, but they know that's why they went out and got him in the first place. So, uh, well, Glenn, we, we could probably do another hour on Hunter, which is crazy, between <laughs> you and I. We probably have yeah. stuff that we, we've left unsaid, but uh, we've gone 50 minutes plus. Let's get out of here. I, I've taken up way, way, way too much of your time, but uh, what's, what's going on in your, in your world? I know Peachtree Hoops draft is coming. The draft is like a month away now as we record this, so uh, we're, getting, we're getting closer.
1: Yeah, so uh, draft profiles are going to be coming soon Peace Peachtree Hoops. I'll have my, my share of those. Uh, as I've mentioned, I'm leaning into this draft uh, class now. I can't do that during the regular season. <laughs> too um, much going on. Too much going on. Um, so you know, follow our work there. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Willisunderbergland, and then you know, Kevin and I are still plugging along on that other podcast that I uh, <laughs> am a regular part of.
0: ATL on twenty nine is the podcast. We will not shy away from it. It's a lot of fun to listen to. You guys have a new episode in the last week. As I uh, as I listened to uh, the other day, I, I, I'm not sure when, when this podcast that we're recording right now is is running. But that podcast is always updated. <laughs> Check out ATL on twenty nine. Uh, that's a fun show that we can all we can all listen to both those podcasts. I will say that there's room for all of us under the tent. Thank you, Glenn, for doing this, as always. Uh, as for everybody else, please subscribe to this show uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube. Uh, follow Glenn on Twitter. Check out Peachtree Hoops as well. And we'll see you all next time.